for New Year's, we have the tradition, and it's, this is not really in our church, but we grew up um, making resolutions. And so today, I want to direct us to the beginning of a plan. It's a new year. Let's plan to do something different as a church this year. Some of the things I'm going to say today uh, are not what we're accustomed to doing. But it's biblical, and I cannot stop emphasizing that I follow God's word. Okay? And so anything I say today would follow God's word. If you have an issue with what I say, do talk to me, and let's talk about it. All right? If you find I didn't say something that's correct. I'm always welcome to correction, but I... I've always pledged to God that I would say what is found in his word. And so today the sermon is entitled, Investing in the Naked, the Wounded, and the Half-Dead. And it's a a theme I want our church to adopt for this year and afterwards. And so the first thing I want to do Because I come from a teaching background, I'm not a preacher, all right? Before we go into the scripture reading and everything else, um, I want to do some teaching to begin with, to help us interpret what the Bible is saying, all right? And so before we do that, uh, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be in church today. We thank you that you've kept us through 2023 and brought us to the beginning of 2024. It already feels to be an old year already for me. But dear God, spending time with you is important. And so as we spend time in your word today, speak to us. Be my lips, be my voice. Be my thoughts. And we pray, dear God, that we will hear and see you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, So the first thing I want us to do, and I know normally my practice has always to use the screen, because it's from my teaching background. But I didn't think I would do justice by using the screen, because... You know, on the screen, all I can put is one verse or two verses. Because if I were to compact an entire parable, you're not going to see all of it at any one moment. I have to keep scrolling through slides. And if you have your Bibles, it's so much easier to scan the page and see what I'm talking about. All right? So if you have your Bibles or if you have your Bible app, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, this is one of the early parables Jesus is telling his disciples. All right? Just giving us context before I go into the verse I need you to look at. Very early, Jesus is talking in parables. 
And that parable at the beginning of chapter 13 is the parable of the four soils. All right? And if you notice, if you remember, because we all know a lot of Jesus' right, uh, words, uh, he's talking about seed that would fall onto four types of soils. All right? Some of the soils are going to be harsh. They're going to be stony. They're going to be thorns, weeds. Uh, some are going to be exposed to the sunlight. Uh, and the ground is so hard. But then some are going to fall on good soil. So Jesus tells this parable without giving an explanation. Because, I mean, he's telling stories. And you, at first glance, you can understand what the story means because it has a physical application. You understand soils and you understand seed needs well-tilled soil in order to grow properly. All right? But the disciples thought there was more to the story. All right? And so they went to Jesus and asked, what do these things mean? Why are you speaking in parables? And so let's turn to verse 10. And so just after Jesus tells the story about the four soils, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied in verse 11, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. In other words, and when you read on, you'll see he's talking about because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, but you, I want you to know what these things mean. This brings to the idea that we're not just talking about soil and planting. There has to be something more because everybody can get that thought. There has to be something more in the story. And Jesus, throughout the Gospels, are talking in parables. So therefore, never take a parable at first glance. All of the parables have an ulterior motive, an additional message. And that message is the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. All of the parables are going to talk about salvation. Something to do with either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which is really the same concept. So never take a parable at first glance. Everything is connected. Therefore, you know how we like to preach? And I'm not a professional preacher. But we take one parable and we could sermonize that parable and that's the end, right? But if all of the parables are dealing with the kingdom of God, then they all are connected. And so what I want to do today is make a connection between a few of the parables. We'll center on the Good Samaritan, yes, but I want to bring a few others into it. 
All right? That's why I need you to use your Bibles or your Bible app. Um, verses 34 and 35 as well on Matthew 13 says this. So this, this happens now after Jesus explains uh, what the parable of the, of the four soils mean. All right? He told them everything about the meaning in the verses prior to this. Um, but then goes on here at the end, after telling some other parables, such as the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast, or yeast. Okay? So verses 34 and 35. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. Mm. Hold on, my pages are sticking. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. We're students of God's word. And so when I want, what I want you to do this year, spend time in the Gospels. There are some secrets in there that are important for your salvation. Secrets that was hidden before Jesus' first appearance on the earth. All right? Of course, a lot of this has been opened up to us now. We understand righteousness by faith much better than, than, the, than before Jesus' uh, first appearance on the earth. All right? But even some of us, we still struggle with understanding. And believe me, I get new understanding still. Amen. All right? And so, because of this, I want you to spend this year going back to the Gospels and try to see the connection using the principle I just told you because that principle is in God's Word. This is Jesus' principle I'm sharing with you. They're all connected, all the parables, and they all have to do with some aspect of salvation. And these are what we call the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And they are being revealed to you so they don't have to be mysteries anymore. The parables contain the mysteries that Jesus wants to reveal to us. So spend time in it and get that revelation. All right? And so now, here's the other thing I want you to understand about the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We tend to look at the Gospels as, as being divided by chapters. And we just focus on a chapter. Sometimes. Let me, let me explain this to you. The four Gospels are really four sermons. Have you ever listened to a sermon, you missed a sermon in church and you listened to it online, or you, you wanted to hear some other speaker from another church and YouTube has it? Do you just take the part that's uh, 15 minutes into the sermon to 25 minutes into the sermon and you get it? We can't do that with the Gospels. Yes, the divisions are there because it's purposely put there because probably there's a certain thought 
within a chapter. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never designed it to be that way. It was a complete sermon throughout each book. All right? So it's for that reason I want us to understand when you, when you do your personal study into God's Word, especially the Gospels, think of it as a thought spanning throughout. It's going to start most of the time with Jesus' birth. It's going to end with his death and resurrection and getting into heaven. But the entire thing, you should see salvation in there. All right? And so there should never be a chapter that doesn't talk about salvation. So look for those when you study the Gospels. All right? And like all Gospels, and like all preachers, um, we all say things a little differently and we all end up saying the same thing, right? <laughs> Remember Pastor Carmona, there was a few years ago, he came regularly and he loved to talk about righteousness by faith and grace. And every time you got something new, but it was the same thing he was saying. He just said it differently each time. Think of the Gospels as all four Gospel writers saying the same thing, but they're just saying it with different illustrations. So that, what I'm trying to show you here is that only the book of Luke has a story of the Good Samaritan. Matthew, Mark, and John chose to leave it out. Now, are they wrong for leaving it out? No, it didn't fit into their sermon that they were writing. In today's sermon, you think I should speak on all the parables? I could if you want me to. Just spend, <laughs> bring potluck in or something, we're going to keep going. <laughs> and so the parable of the Good Samaritan that we looked at in our scripture reading it's found in Luke chapter 10, so you can find that now. And I want to put it, the, the parable into its rightful setting. Luke chapter 10 begins with Jesus sending 72 of his disciples out to be witnesses. And very early in the chapter... Uh, they return. All right? And in verse 17, after returning, this is, what the, this is what their report is. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So they went about doing some good things, Right? And they had a good report. At least that's what we think of it. But what did Jesus have to do? What, did Jesus, what was Jesus' response? It seemed to be, he seemed to be reprimanding them a bit. Because he says in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am not so concerned about what you've been able to do in my name. I am more conscious. It is more important to me that you make it into heaven. In other words, the deeds that you do are secondary to your salvation. The chapter ends with another story. So let's go down to the end of the chapter. And we're talking about Jesus' visit to Mary and Martha. Right away, Martha gets excited. Jesus is at, is at home, so let me just go and start preparing. And in preparing, she's concerned. I have so much to do. She's so bogged down with the task that has to be done with the entertaining of her guests. She loses sight of the important thing that Jesus had to now show her. Martha, you worried so much about these things when all you had to do is do what your sister Mary is doing, sitting at my feet and listening to me. In other words, just like the lesson with the 72 followers, Martha was so concerned with the duties that she thought she was assigned to and neglected the spending time with Jesus, the source of her salvation. The 72 disciples and Mary and Martha, they're connected because Luke chose to put them together with the parable of the Samaritans right in between. So I'm going to come back to that thought when we, come to the, when we deal with the Samaritans. The thought that do not get bogged down with the duties assigned to you that you do not spend time with Jesus. Okay, so now let's, still in that chapter, uh, let's turn to the parable of the Good Samaritan. First of all, Jesus never calls a Samaritan good, okay? We've chosen to title that passage as the Good Samaritan, because there's none good but God, all right? But that's a good fitting title still. Because I'll show you where God is in the picture. He's in the story. All right? And so it's good to call God good. All right? <laughs> um, so, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a really loaded story. There's an unfinished part of the parable. And today, I want us to finish that parable. Now, I'm not talking about any sacrilegious type thing. All right? 
I want us to finish that parable here today. By finishing it, um, we're going to connect it to some other parables in an effort to complete the thought. All right, so bear with me. And this is what I'm telling you. If I say something wrong, talk to me about it. All right? First of all, uh, let's read it. And I'm going to read the parable from the early part, from verse 25 on to 37. So it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So this is a lawyer, right? And you know how lawyers can be when they're questioning. All right? A teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's quite fitting how that question comes in there. Because Jesus was concerned with the 72 disciples that your name is written in, the, in heaven, eternal life. And with Mary and Martha, that Mary chose the good thing, sitting at Jesus' feet, the source of eternal life. So that everything is connected here in this chapter. So don't take these as three isolated stories. Luke had a reason for putting these things together. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, and how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, like a typical lawyer, right? He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The question of who is my neighbor is based on his response earlier. Okay? Because you should love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. So when it talks about who is my neighbor, it also goes back into that earlier statement as to loving my neighbor. And those were answers in response to the question of what must I do to have eternal life? And so verse 30 says, in reply Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Wait, no, I read that wrong. And so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, 
I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And so the question Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law, which was the lawyer, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. All based on that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus in that parable was not only addressing who was my neighbor, but he was also addressing the earlier question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus in that parable was addressing both questions. All right? Be mindful of that when you read the story. So I tell you, this is an unfinished parable. All right? And I'll show you what I mean in just a little bit. At first glance, what does the parable tell us? Anybody reading it can see, well, Samaritan was a neighborly guy. All right? Here's the other part that we all know of. The Samaritan and the Jews, they're related, right? Okay? Yeah, there was some hatred that came about afterward, especially after after Solomon's time, all right? Because then we have King Rehoboam, which was Solomon's son, became king of all of Israel. And then they went to, then the people went to Rehoboam and said, can you just tax us less? Your father, which was King Solomon, and I know we like to talk about the good things of Solomon, but your father taxed us so heavily to support his lavish lifestyle. Can you just ease the burden on us a bit? Instead of Rehoboam listening to the people, he says, I will increase your burden. And so there was a split in Israel. Judah and Benjamin, those tribes, followed Rehoboam, and the other ten tribes of Israel, they broke away. They seceded from the union. All right? And what we have happening now, those ten nations will be called the northern tribes of Israel. They're also going to be called the land of Samaria. All right? And so the Samaritans are related to the people that we're going to call Jews. There's going to be animosity between them because the Samaritans are going to be the first under their new leader, uh, Jeroboam. They're going to fall into idolatry right away because Jeroboam doesn't want them to go back to, to Judah. So he's going to set up his own idols and say, come worship, this is your gods. So they're going to fall into idolatry early. Um, Judah is going to fall into idolatry soon after. All right? But even though they've fallen into idolatry at different times, there's going to be a time when Judah uh, is going to keep uh, recanting of their sins and now turning to God and then falling back into sin and then turning to God. And you know the cycle keeps going on and on. And in that cycle, throughout their history, 
the Jews are going to think that they're more important than their relatives, the Samaritans. All right? They are more important to God. And so they're going to engage in what would be like a, a seclusive type religion. All right? Thinking that the Samaritans are just outcasts. There's going to be struggles between them because if you read uh, the early historian Josephus, he wrote way back then in that uh, first century. There was so much animosity between them that Josephus uh, recorded that the Jews from Judah went over into northern Israel and desecrated one of their idol temples. And so obviously, Samaritans are going to hate the Jews. And so what happened? They retaliated and now brought some dead bones into the tem temple in Jerusalem under the cover at night. So, and so, in other words, they've desecrated God's temple. So there's this tit for tat, do for me, do against me, I'll do against you, that type of infighting. So there's great animosity between both, of both groups. Now here's the thing here. Jesus is talking to a Jewish lawyer and telling him how good the Samaritan is in the story. He's depicting a Samaritan who the, the lawyer hates and saying, this is a good man. Look at the good thing. And, and then... Uh, then the lawyer can't even say his name when he says, when Jesus asks, who's being neighborly? The lawyer can only say the one who had mercy. He can't even say the name Samaritan in his mouth. All right? You see that lesson in the story. All right? So I don't want to go into that story, but I'm telling you, it's a loaded parable. Um, the parable also addresses uh, what you must do to inherit eternal life. Being neighborly. Okay, loving God, loving your neighbors. Um, the parable also goes deeper. Because you see, into this parable, um, there's the other interpretation that Jerusalem represents a state of holiness and Jericho a state of unholiness, of sin. Okay? So that what's happening in the story is that the man is leaving Jerusalem, a state of holiness, going down into Jericho. And the setting here is a real mountainous setting. Jerusalem is 2,700 feet above sea level, and Jericho is below sea level, about 900 feet below sea level. So it's mountainous. I don't know how many of you drive through mountainous areas. Even going through Pennsylvania on the 1890, uh, you know how winding the roads are? They become, when you go through, around the mountains, and you know, how, you know the precipices on the side? So think of this setting. There's some 3,000, almost 4,000 feet in height of mountain and valleys. And so, and it talks, uh, this should illustrate now the depths that we go when we leave 
a state of holiness into sin. All right? And so within this parable, you should see um, the state of holiness that we once were in. Because in this parable, Jesus is talking about salvation, and he goes back to the origin in this, in that man was created sinless. All right? But then they fell. They fell into sin because a robber who is Satan came and stole his holiness. And what did it take after that holiness got stolen and left bruised and naked and half dead? What happened? It took Jesus, who is the good Samaritan in the story, to come and cleanse those wounds and take care of the man and carry him to the innkeeper where he would leave him in charge of the innkeeper. All right? Now, what did he lose? I told you I'm going to start connecting things. In Galatians 5, we're accustomed to it. And let's go to it, but keep your finger on, page, on Luke 10 because we're going to come back. In Galatians 5... Nineteen to twenty-three. First of all, let's look at twenty-two and twenty-one. I mean, twenty-two and twenty-three. It says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law." That's the state of holiness that man was before. When God created man. He gave you of his spirit, and he put in you the desire to be these things. Well, what happened afterwards? Like in the parable, robbers came and stole. And what they stole and left behind was some other things. Those other things are found in verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Those are the bruises that we're talking about now. So God saw us after Adam and Eve sinned and said, I got to do something. Look at what Satan did to my creation. And so what he did, he took us in his arms and took care of our wounds. Amen. Look and see what, that, what, what he's doing with our wounds. In the parable, he's pouring wine 
always symbolic of his blood, because we do that in communion, and this oil, always symbolic of the spirit, because God needs to plant his spirit back into us. So it's like, in caring for the Samaritan, Jesus is baptizing the man and preparing him for that state of holiness once more. Of course, the bad seed that the devil planted is still going to be there. And we long for that bad seed to be gone. Remember the parable with the wheat and the tears? The so-good seed? But then the enemy came and sowed some weeds in between? And what did Jesus say? Let them grow together. Do not try to separate them now. So that means we got to tolerate the tears that have been planted inside us. Because normally we look at the tears as though it's somebody else, but not me. But within me is wheat and tears. And God is saying, I'm going to leave those two things alone until I come. In the meantime, feed my spirit. And the spirit will help keep the weeds under control for you. So we lived in a very bruised body. All right? When the Samaritan story looks at the man as being naked, bruised, and half dead, it represents me and you. But in this story, the church comes to play. Because you see, the innkeeper represents the church. Jesus has taken bruised people, people he's baptized, and bringing them to the church and say, take care of them until I return. Isn't that the, the gospel? The innkeeper is the church. Obviously now, I want you to pay attention to the story. By bringing a man who's half dead to the innkeeper. Now mind you, an innkeeper is a hotel manager, right? It's not a hospital. What could he do with somebody who's half dead, who's lost blood, who's wounded? What could he do? He's not trained for this. In other words, Jesus is telling the innkeeper, I need you to change your plan of action. The things you're accustomed to do is going to be no more. I have something new for you to do. And so my aim for this church is that we do something new in the year 2024.
The innkeeper wasn't trained to take care of wounded people. But Jesus still felt it his responsibility to, to pass it on to the innkeeper. Now mind you, what's going to happen here? Think of, imagine, put your mind into the story. Bed sheets are going to be soiled with blood. The innkeeper wasn't prepared for that. He's not accustomed to that kind of soil. But the man is so weak that he needs additional attention. He needs help, physical help. And the innkeeper now needs to leave the front desk and go to somebody's room to get them to even use the bathroom and to help them bathe because they're so helpless, which takes you back to the idea of sin and the devil. People who are lost in sin and have been practicing sin all their lives are so weak. They need a little more effort from us when Jesus brings them into the church. Is the church prepared to take on that extra effort? I think of the disciples in Acts in the very first few chapters, they went out preaching and thousands got baptized in one day. You know what happened right afterwards? There was problems. What were the problems? There were needs throughout the church. And so what people did, well, in order to feed the hungry, some people were selling their homes just to provide food for these new converts. They got together and repurposed everything of what the church should have been. I look at our church today, and I don't like seeing empty pews. I have a vision for this church, and you can choose to accept the vision or not. But I want to see this church packed. I want to see this church so packed that we have to have two services on Sabbath. I want to see this church so packed that it will force us to put a new building somewhere that's much larger. And use this church, for this building for something else as part of our ministry. That's what I want to see. And I want to see the idea of the packing this church this year happen. The way we go about inviting people to church... I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. Let's do it differently. Because I've got to bring in another parable. And that parable will tie it in. But there's another part into this story. The Good Samaritan did the innkeeper really wrong. You give him two silver, two silver piece coins... Some Bibles, I think the New King James says two denaria, which was two days' wages, and said, Spend anything extra, and when I come back, I will re- reimburse you. In other words, Jesus is telling the church, Spend out of your own profits. 
like the innkeeper. The innkeeper now is, the two coins wasn't going to be enough. And Jesus knew that in the story. That what I'm giving you is not going to be sufficient. I'm dependent upon you to put in the extra. And when you put in the extra, eventually when I do return, and notice he didn't say when he would return. He said, when I return, well, we don't know how long that's going to take. And we're still waiting for Jesus right now. When I return, I will, I will reimburse you. In other words, spend out of your own pockets the people I have sent into your church. And take care of them. Because your eternal life depends upon it. This chapter in Luke is dealing with eternal life. So first of all, Jesus didn't leave enough money. All right? And just like in the book of Acts, notice what's happening. In the, I don't know if you realize what's happening in the book of Acts and the rest of the, the New Testament. Jesus was the only one who ever multiplied food, you know. You know, in the book of Acts, the disciples are casting out demons and raising from the dead and healing sickness, but none of them could make food. And that is what the people needed. Why? Because they had resources to buy the food. And it was a good thing. Because you know those buildings that they had? A few years afterwards, they'd have to leave those buildings beside. And lose it completely. Alright? Because Jerusalem would be destroyed in AD 70. Alright? So what's the use in holding on to buildings? When they're going to be destroyed anyway. So might as well sell it and feed to other people. Now, I'm not telling you all in this time yet, but if at the point in time when just before Christ comes and this church becomes filled and you have extra resources, I get involved because Christ is coming and it's going to be soon. All right? The other part of this story is that it's not going to take two days for this man to be healed. It's going to take a while. Wounds at that nature to cause you to be half dead is going to take a while. And so there's going to be a long-term relationship and bond between this injured man and the innkeeper. Same way how we expect a long-term relationship between any member in our church. All right? And there's going to be a bond. Eventually... And I like to add, to add on to this story. So this part is not biblical, but I want you to bear with me. Eventually, and this comes to the concept of discipleship in the church. I see the innkeeper training this man, this wounded man, after he has regained himself, making him into an innkeeper also. Because innkeepers make innkeepers. And then he's saying, go out over there in that location because there are wounded people over there. And I want you to take care of them the same way I have taken care of you. Which brings us to the other point. The innkeeper was also a wounded man before that time. 
And it's only then he could have realized and understand that I was healed by Jesus so I can provide healing to somebody else. I told you there's some depth to these stories and just not first glance. Jesus didn't say when he would be back. But there's been a delay. All right? Um, but he asked, he asked, he has given us the wounded, the half dead, and the naked, according to the story, into our church. We always tend to look at this as though it's all spiritual, but sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's physical. All right? In either case, eternal life is in the thought, is in what you do. It's in there in that message. And so, who are these half-dead people? Um, let's turn to Luke chapter 14. I want to bring in another parable. All right? I'm not going to keep you much longer. I'm coming to the end. Luke 14, 15 to 24. I'm not going to read the parable because you know it, but I want you to have it so you can browse it while I'm talking. So Luke 14, 15 to 24. So we see a certain man, a certain great man prepared a feast. All right? And in preparing that feast, he had some invited guests. He sent out invitations way before, saying, on such and such and such a date, mark your calendar, we're having a feast. And I want you, my special friends, to come over. And so coming to the, t to the time for the feast now, all of a sudden he sends out, because he didn't see them show up on time, he sends out his servants to say, hey, come, the feast is today. It's right now. It's happening now. And what did they start to do? They made excuses. They made so many excuses. Mind you, these are invited people. These are people, the, the one who is in charge of the party, planning the party, the host. These were his special friends. These are the ones he considered the most. After all the excuses, what did he decide, the host decide? Well, we can't have this food go to waste. And it's the same thing with the gospel I want you to, to plan for. You cannot let the gospel go to waste. Our church has been so empty. There's too many empty pews here today. The gospel is going to waste. And so what he did, he said, I want you to go down the alleyways, Go down to that neighborhood over there and just bring as much people in. And when they brought all those people in, there was still space in the banquet. So what did he say? I want you to go a little further off. Go to the countryside. Bring those people. Bring the maimed, the blind, whoever you can find. Whoever you think does not fit into the category of what my special friends should have been. 
Now, I want you to think of something else here. We're involved in outreach, and I want to take it a step further this year. You know who we outreach to? People who look like us and dress like us and talk like us. The people we identify with. That was the mistake this host had in the Great Supper. And he came to his senses and turned things around. And who did he call? People who he would never have thought to bring into the Great Supper. Can we do something differently? Because this lesson of the Great Supper really drives the point as to why there is a delay in Jesus' coming. Because the feast is all planned, the gospel is for everybody, and there are certain groups of people we don't identify with. You walk down the streets and you see a homeless person, invite them. You look at another group of people so riddled with sin. You know the prostitute, the pimp, and their clients? Invite them. You know the drug dealer and the drug addict? Invite them all. The church ready for problems? Are you ready to repurpose the hotel business and now says we're going to be a hospital in here like it was required of this innkeeper? God has set up a special plan for us and it's right there in the Gospels. If only the church would repurpose itself and take care of the people who would be glad to come in. Just invite them. Our church will be filled. Does it matter what they look like when they come here? Just fill the church up. No picking and choosing when we go out there. You know, we tend to only look at our co-workers and probably our family members. But you walk down the street and you see somebody in need. Say, come to church. I'm coming to pick you up. I don't care what you look like. You don't even have to speak English to me. I'm going to do it. All right? I don't care how you smell or look. We'll deal with that when it happens here. But let's church be an all-welcoming place according to the parable of that great supper. Those are the wounded people in the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus so wants to heal, and Jesus so wants to leave in the church so that we can complete the care for them. In the end, Jesus says, when I return, I will repay. It doesn't matter how much you spend. It doesn't matter where the money is coming from. God will provide at all times. Just go in faith, bring people in, and we'll deal with the rest. You see a new way of repurposing church? I was given this dream one time. 
and I'm going to share with you my special dream because I think it's going to happen. In that dream, and I th- this has to be from God. In that dream, I had where we're taking in the homeless and giving them a sense of being. But here's the plan. I'm not depending on the state or anything, because that was in the dream. Don't depend on the state. Don't depend on donations. But set up small businesses where you can put them to work. You don't charge them for food. You don't charge them for housing. And you pay them for working. But you pay them, the businesses are going to be so lucrative that the profit would cover all that cost. Such as farming in a wide scale where we don't even trust even the produce we buy anymore. So it's going to be wide scale farming depending on the principles Jesus had laid out where he says, I will control your pests for you, just pray to me. I will make your, your yield bountiful, just pray to me and follow me. And based on those principles that I had in my dream, God will provide. So the income... And so if there's somebody else with another skill, you run a supermarket close by that's associated with there, and you have everything set up, all right? Doing that. And I see myself going there because that dream is still stuck with me. And I'm just saying, God, can you do this? And in that compound, big, I don't know how much, hundreds of acres, church is going to be there. And you tell the people, this is church. This is what we believe in. This is why we do this. And so you bring not only the homeless, but my ex-offenders who are coming out from prison and my refugees who are fleeing some other country that we just don't know where to put them anymore. All right? They all have skills. But this should be what church should be like. All right? I know in our structure, it can't deal with some of this stuff. And so God has been calling me as though to, I, 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 it's not leaving the church, but to set up a ministry like this. All right? And I see it happening. It's, I just I'm trying to finish up school while still having this dream. All right? But I'm just sharing it with you about the repurposing of what church should be like. Also, in that dream, there'll be medical facilities close by. There'll be mental health facility close by. All to deal with the different issues of everybody that's coming in. But if church can be like that, all encompassing, dealing with all the needs, that's what the gospel was called for. And not just for the people that look like us. Matthew chapter 25, and I'm coming to an end now. Okay, it's my last scripture. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 30 to 46. Sorry for keeping you here this long. Um, Jesus talks about when he does return. Uh, he's going to separate the goat from the sheep. 
All right, and then he's going to say, uh, you who've taken me in. All right? Then the king shall say, this is verse 34. Then the king shall say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you give me something to eat. I was thirsty and you give me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you look after me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invited you in or needed clothes to clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. Back to that Samaritan. The church is the innkeeper. Jesus is putting himself as the bruised man here. See, whatever you do to that bruised man, you're doing it to me. So I want you to see me while you take care of the bruised person, that wounded person. And so in our ministry, in our outreach, whatever level of outreach we choose to do from this church in 2024, and I do hope it's more than what we do now, Picture whatever you do, you're doing it to Jesus. Jesus must be seen. You must be able to see Jesus in all these people. All right? Just like the innkeeper spending time with, with that wounded man, while he recuperates, they become like one. It's a whole thing of discipleship. There'll be one. Same purpose, same mindset. You spend enough time with somebody, you become change. So God is calling us as a church to take care of the wounded, the half dead, the sick, the hungry. Don't think of the cost. Welcome everybody to this church. They're not your normal, typical people. You'll see down the street, invite them. Purposely tell yourself, let me invite somebody that I normally would not invite. Let that be the year 2024. We invite people that do not fit our category of what church membership belongs to. I think we're going to see an influx of people into God's church. You're satisfied with empty pews? I'm not. How will you finish this parable? I told you the parable was unfinished. The finishing depends on you, the innkeeper, the church. Are you going to fill the pews up? Are you going to repurpose the church to do more than it has done before in a wider scale? God is calling you. Whether it's the church at all or an individual person, God is calling you to do what you can as an innkeeper, as someone God is leaving people to you to take care of that will be saved.
And so let us all stand as we pray. And I apologize for taking so long. All right? But I needed to do this. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the healing that we've all received. And dear God, that healing is just not for us alone. It's for everybody else in this world. Dear God, we pray for healing in our community. We pray for healing uh, where we work. We pray for healing in our homes, among our relatives, our friends, wherever we may be. We pray for healing, dear God. Save your people, I pray. May this church be a church of growth, of renewed vigor to see lost souls being won to you. There's enough gospel to go around there, God. And we pray that we would not waste it on people who would not show up. Help us to take care of those in need. Forgive us where we've gone wrong. And be with us as we chart new courses, whatever they may be, as this church decides. May your name be praised and blessed. And we thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.